Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder. I think that you're gonna be blown away with his story. Uh, it's gonna be super inspiring. Obviously not the typical founder that starts in his 20s, but nevertheless, incredible journey that he had when he decided that it was his time to really bring his baby to life. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sridhar Ramaswamy. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. So originally born there in uh, India. I mean, obviously born in a middle class, also sharing a one-bedroom apartment with your four siblings. I mean, how was life growing up? It was the four of us. I have one sibling. Uh, it was, you know, it was a lower middle class life. Uh, I, there's nothing to complain about. There was no issue with food. Um, but uh, I was also a family in which my, neither of my parents went to college. So there was always a lot of pressure on education. Do well in college, get to a great college, you know, get get a degree. And there was palpable pressure, but it was good. It was the it was the right dose of medicine for that time. But I think that that's kind of like spread across because I got to tell you that most of the entrepreneurs from India that I come across, they have a background in engineering. So at one point I was, I was not asking them, you know, I was not asking anyone that was an entrepreneur coming from India if they had a computer science degree. I mean, why everyone, a computer, I mean, in Spain, for example, is either you are a lawyer or a banker, but in India is either you are an engineer or an engineer. Why is that the case? Well, first there's selection bias in who you meet in the Valley. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, because uh, sometimes people, uh, you know, will ask me questions like, well, you know, all the Indians I meet in Palo Alto are well-educated and quite wealthy. And I tell them, well, <laughs> those are the only people that can afford houses in Palo Alto. Um, right. But there's a little bit of that. But actually, the funnier story is how the entire nation decides that something is a priority. And I think, uh, you know, in India, for example, right around independence, um, what did you do if you were someone really bright? You became a lawyer. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I think it, it has become more into engineering and, um, and, and things like medicine. But now I think you're also seeing more entrepreneurship flourish within the country. This is, these are all natural progressions. I grew up at a time where, you know, to achieve something in India was to become a doctor or an engineer. So I became an engineer. That's amazing. So then let's talk about that because 
you obviously did your computer science degree uh, and uh, you obviously moved from, from where you were. You ended up in, in Bangalore. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's a very interesting progression there on, on how you do your studies around engineering and, and how you end up in the U.S. I mean, tell us about that transition. I mean, I'm sure it was quite a, quite a, quite a culture shock for you, too. Yeah, the, even getting into engineering at the right school was a little bit of uh, a struggle for me. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of these ridiculously difficult examinations that the IITs have to figure out, you know, which 2,000 people, roughly speaking, get in. In my year, 2,000 out of 100,000 people that took the exam got into the IITs. The first year I tried it, I did so badly and I was really unhappy. So I sat at home for an entire year afterwards, just getting ready for the exam. My parents were horrified that I would spend a whole year instead of going to some local college. Um, but I was both stubborn and lucky. I made it into IIT Madras. That's where I got a great computer science degree. Um, and uh, we were also very lucky um, that my friend Ravi and I were admitted to Brown University. We were literally the first kids from IIT Madras that were admitted to Brown. Um, Brown was such a liberating experience. It has an amazing computer science program, but as you know, it also has an amazing liberal arts program. So I learned a lot about literature, about music, all the things I didn't learn when I was growing up, I learned in those five years at Brown and got a PhD to boot. Uh, I owe a lot of who I am uh, to the education that I got both at IIT Madras and then at Brown. Brown made me a real person because I realized that there is also a lot more than computer science and engineering. And, and I guess, you know, this was your segue into, into research, really. So, so, so why, why research, out of all things? Uh, I didn't think very hard about it. Um, you know, a PhD program, uh, it's kind of silly, but a PhD program is typically the one that will give you a scholarship. You don't have to uh, come up with money to support yourself. There was zero chance um, that my parents would be able to do it. They just could not afford to fund my education in the U.S. So you did a PhD because of the likelihood that you got a scholarship was just that much higher. Um, I liked um, doing research. I liked the exploratory nature um, of, uh, you know, of, of doing research. I had a wonderful, wonderful advisor. Um, he was uh, from Greece. His name is Paris Kanalakis. And so he was passionate about science. A lot of that stuff rubbed off. I like doing research early, um, early on and getting, getting a PhD. It took me a while to realize that that was not my passion. And that is an important topic that I talk to a lot of people about. You want to find something that is both going to give you a living in order to support yourself, but also something that you are passionate about. Um, I'm grateful that I was able to get a living, you know, getting, uh, getting a PhD and then joining research labs. But this was not the thing that was going to keep me up until 3 a.m. in the morning or make me get up at 4 a.m. I've done both of those in my life. Um, and that's when I switched out of research. But research was a great way to sort of literally come to the U.S. Without doing a PhD, I doubt I'd have been able to even come to the U.S. Wow. So then, so then let's talk about that, about that moment where, you know, like you obviously, you know, made a decision that research was not for you. But I'm sure that research gave you a really nice base and something that, you know, you use even today, you know, for certain things about analysis or how you're viewing things. So, so what kind of base would you say that research gave you? And at what point did you decide that research was not for you? The profoundness of academic research uh, comes from an obsession about ideas. 
professors, as you know, like until very recently, um, don't get paid a lot. So there is a lot of pride in the quality of the ideas that you generate and in peer recognition of that quality of ideas. So there is relentless focus on what is that distillation. And that is actually a lesson that I use to this day. If you were to ask me about a Google career or why Neva or what is Neva about, uh, I, I'm able to distill things down into the, the bare essence of what the truth is. And research teaches you that discipline. Just writing that abstract where you're taking the work that you did for six months and creating something with six sentences in it. And by the way, whether you get accepted or not into a big conference is going to depend very much on what the person reading the abstract does. So it forces a discipline in thinking that you know is incredibly powerful. And I use that every single day in this conversation, for example. What is like what is the essence that I want to convey? So eventually you ended up landing in Google. And uh, that was obviously a pivotal moment in your career. So so how did you come across, you know, the Google opportunity? Because, I mean, at that point, it was not the Google that we know today. You know, it was, uh, you know, kind of like still a, a, a startup to a certain degree that was uh, coming out, you know, coming out strong, but, but certainly a startup. So how did that, you know, land in your radar? You know, I decided to move out of research because at some level, I decided that it was not broadly applicable. There's a joy in ideas. But at some point, I came to the conclusion that maybe like 10 people read paper, uh, papers that I wrote. Um, so ironically, um, it was right around the time where four papers that I wrote with my co-authors got into one of the most prestigious conferences that I also decided that I was done with research. I needed to restart my life. We moved out to the valley. I joined a startup. I had the perfect dot-com experience, which means that you know, I joined the company six months later, it went public, the stock zoomed up to the stratosphere um, and then crashed down, um, you know, down to real life. I joked to people that I sold stock in that company to put a down payment on my house. I also sold stock in the company to let me buy pizza for the evening. Uh, so it was quite the dot-com experience. I joined Google because honestly, I didn't have a lot of insight into how amazing Google was going to be. I had some friends who were there. Um, I was looking for a place where I could join contribute as an engineer. I wanted to write code. Um, at the end of the day, I'm passionate about creating things. I also felt like it was really important to learn. And you see this, you know, this, this reset is a constant phenomenon in my life. It happens over time. Google was a reset when I, when I went from being a director of a team with over 100 people back to being an individual contributor. Um, there were elements of greatness. I was also exceptionally lucky that I landed in one of the two teams that were going to be so impactful for Google, I joined the search ads team. Um, and uh, that team has, you know, person per person, made more money than any other team on the planet, literally, that we can imagine. It was also a complete pressure cooker where every line of code that you wrote could cause the entirety of the ad system to come crashing down. And you would literally lose like $1,000 a second if you messed things up. Wow. It was a great place to get going. Um, but that's how I came to Google, and I grew with the search ads team. Because how many people were in Google when you when you joined? How big was I think it was about five, six hundred people. It was a wow. it was a reasonably sized company. It was going to make uh, I think one point six billion dollars of revenue in two thousand and three. Those are still remarkable numbers. 
there are some set of people that knew that this was going to be a pretty amazing company, but I don't think anyone realized at the time that this was going to be a trillion dollar company. I have a funny story about the first $100 billion plan that we wrote, if you're interested. Go for it. <laughs> um, so Eric Schmidt uh, asked uh, me and several other folks, Bruce, who is at Twitter now, um, to write a plan to make $100 billion. This was like 2007. And we all thought this was a joke. Because which company makes $100 billion in revenue? Um, and so we, we wrote this plan. And much to our surprise, the conclusion of the plan was roughly that if Google were to make $100 billion, it would make it with search ads, not with one of the other newfangled businesses that it was trying to, that it was trying to create. Um, and at the time, people didn't really want to believe this plan. But that is actually the thing that turned out to be true. Roughly 2018 was when Google crossed like $100 billion in revenue. And much of that came indeed from the search ads team. Wow, that's amazing. So, so that's, that's incredible. But one thing that is even more incredible is that that team and also the revenue that you guys were generating, I mean, it was like 36 times the compounding annual growth rate. I mean, that, that was kind of like the, or, or what was the rate, the speed of, of growth on that? Yeah, so Google revenue has grown by 36% oh my God. every year. Yeah, uh, since the time that I was there. And, uh, you know, one of my friends computed this number for me. You know, these are publicly available yeah. numbers as I was leaving. And uh, that, is, uh, that is something that is truly remarkable. Outside of, uh, you know, the pandemic and the recession back in 2008, Google's not really had a, a down quarter. Um, it's, it's hard for people to realize, like, what a straight line arc that has been. And the entirety of that success has been driven by the success of the search ads team. And obviously, you know, one thing that probably our, you know, our listeners are wondering right now is what, what does it look like when you have like a, like a team, like the search ads teams, you know, that, that, a team that is like really generating this level of output. I mean, what, what is the culture? What is the, what does it look like being in a rocket ship like that? It's an amazing team. First of all, you had some of the most amazing engineers, data scientists, UX designers on the team. Uh, I think one of the truths is that uh, you know, Google was able to assemble the team without, like, without any reasonable comparables. Uh, it was an amazing team that came together. But there are also cultural principles that we put on top of it. This was a team much more so than any other team at Google. That was data focused. Because we were running at such scale, um, we always were able to get additional data about what we should do. And uh, you know how it is, right? People say, you know, it's the opinion of the boss that goes, or it's the truth from the data. And so this was a team that was relentlessly focused on data. I used to tell my team, you know, neither you nor I can kid about the almighty dollar. And so once you're able to measure things at that scale, um, you become focused on that. It was a team that took a lot of risks that moved very, very quickly. Some of the largest changes in business, um, whether it was switching shopping completely over from a mixture of an organic and paid model to an entirely paid model, or something that we called enhanced campaigns, where we merged how advertisers thought of mobile campaigns and desktop campaigns and said there's only one campaign 
This is a massive change on a $60 billion um, revenue stream at that time. This is a team that took a lot of risk and executed them because of the quality of the talent that, uh, you know, that was there. Um, it, was, it, was, it was quite the experience. That's incredible. And, and obviously at Google, I mean, you were there for like 15 years. And uh, I'm sure that the company that you joined, it was a different company when you were leaving. So uh, what did that company look like? And, and also what prompted you to make that incredible decision of really understanding that it was your time, you know, right now to really launch your own thing and, and really bringing Niva to life? It uh, happened in phases. The first was a disillusionment with the ads model, uh, which came because of a series of problems um, that YouTube had, uh, you know, in, in, in 2017. Already by that time, it was becoming clear that systems like Facebook, like YouTube, even search, were operating at a scale that literally nobody on the planet had imagined that these systems would be operating at, the impact that they had on people. So I would say the, the 2016 election and the Russian interference in the election was a wake-up call um, for, uh, uh, for all of us um, in terms of how this power could be misused. Obviously, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which had nothing to do with Google, came later. Um, but really, over 2017, we had a series of problems um, with, uh, you, know, you can just call it bad content on YouTube, um, which made me more and more reluctant about whether the ads model whether the ads ecosystem was indirectly contributing to that kind of content. Um, and of course, you know, we had uh, a lot of very painful conversations with advertisers where we had to tell them we had the problem under control only to discover that there was some other aspect of it uh, that we did not really have under control. Uh, so it was in this situation that I decided that I didn't really want to work on ads anymore. I'm an accidental ads person. Um, as I've told you, like I'm a researcher, I'm a computer scientist. Uh, if you were to ask me, like, what am I most, what am I? I would say I'm a software engineer, I'm a computer scientist. And so ads was an accidental part of my life, and I decided that I just needed out. Um, and once you've been the SVP of ads at Google, there are not that many jobs that can compare. So I decided that I also needed a complete reset, um, and I needed to start over um, and uh, leave Google. Uh, and I didn't honestly know what I was going to do. I was lucky to join Greylock as a venture partner. I continue to be there. I do a small number of investments for, uh, for Greylock. But essentially, that period after I left Google was when I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do with my time and what innovation meant. Um, Neva started on a simple uh, but profoundly core principle, which is that tech needed to go back to creating products that had loyalty to its users, to its customers. So the core thesis of Neva is that creating a subscription product is going to lead to a superior product for you. So Neva is a subscription search engine, um, which just means that the entirety of my team is focused on creating a better search experience for you. And things like being ads-free and private, which is how we describe Neva, uh, to the average citizen in our country, if they were to say, what's Neva? I would say it's an ads-free private search engine. But it's important to understand that ads-free private is a consequence of the subscription model. Really, both Vivek and I think that technology needs to go back to simpler 
foundational aspects of capitalism and start serving people. One of the profound truths of the last 20 years is that the benefits of scale have gone to the creators of technology, not the you and me. And the simple example that I can give for you here is that Google roughly spent a billion dollars on search in 2010 and say made $40 billion, roughly. These are both approximations, but they're reasonable approximations. In 2020, let's say, Google still spent only a billion dollars on search and made over $100 billion of revenue. Why? The ad model is designed to channel all revenue and all profit to the creators of the product. Because the product is free, how is it going to get better for you as it scales? Um, so to me, this is the problem with the ad-supported model. We uh, reset a lot of these principles. We said, Neva is going to be customer first. Neva is going to be subscription. Of course, we are going to be ads-free and, uh, and private and focused on delivering a superior experience for you. Uh, but the larger thinking here is that software should serve people. Uh, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I aspire for Neva to be like the drinking water that comes out of our tap. Cheap, reliable, and affordable to everybody on the planet and of great utility. So, and I love this. I guess in terms of Vivek, your co-founder for Neva, uh, Vivek, uh, his background, you know, they are a YouTube as well. So it seems that you guys were both to a certain degree under the umbrella of Google. But I guess, you know, how did you guys really build that meaningful connection? And, and what was that process like where one day, because as they say, ideas take time to incubate, they're there in the back burner, even though we can even realize that they are there, they are actually there incubating. But what was yeah. that, perhaps that day where you and Vivek, you know, you looked at each other on the eye and you said, let's do this. So Vivek and I have worked together for over 10 years. He was a hotshot PhD that came to the uh, search ads team that I used to run. This was in 2007. Uh, he had a huge impact on the team. Many of our most celebrated launches, our toughest servers, uh, these were things that he built. Uh, he spent some years um, and went and worked on what is now called the Google Assistant. He was one of the early tech leads um, in, that, uh, in that team. I convinced him to join the YouTube ads team roughly around 2014, and he worked on that team uh, for five years. Uh, again, lots of profound changes made within the context of how YouTube ads, um, ads work. You know, he and I went through the trenches, so to say, of all the brand safety issues with YouTube. Um, and these were some of the most stressful experiences in our entire lives. Um, and once you have been through things like that, you really see what people are made of. And we knew that we had a relationship where we trusted each other implicitly um, and where we could rely on each other. After I left Google, he brainstormed about things that we could work on. He was pretty open to the idea of starting a company. And uh, we settled on Neva because we loved search. He said, we can think of this product very differently if we have different principles. And so our aha moment was subscription search was going to be a game changer because it let you think about the product in a dramatically different fashion. Um, that's kind of how Neva came to be. It was many walks, you know, at the Stanford Dish and other places in this area, but it's really after one of those walks where we said, we have the conviction, let's go do this. So then what happened next? Well, so we started putting together a team. This was early um, 2019. We had a third co-founder at, uh, at the time, uh, Kaz Nikolaus. So it was really 
the um, it was the three of us. Uh, we assembled a great team, uh, and uh, uh, we got the privilege of uh, having uh, many early Google engineers join our team. These are the people that built some of the hardest systems, both in search quality as well as infrastructure. Um, and they're all with uh, you know they're all with 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 our team. About a year later, uh, Kaz decided to leave Neva. Uh, for a set of reasons. I mean, Kaz and I and Vivek are good friends. We, we stay in touch. Um, and so Vivek and I continued on with, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, with this journey. And uh, we got our first round of funding from, uh, from Greylock and from Sequoia. Sequoia was one of the original um, funders of uh, Google. And there's a certain irony in that. Bill Coren from Sequoia, who used to run uh, Google Search for 10 years, um, is one of our investors. He is on. Uh, he's on our board. And so, what has happened really over the last two two and a half years is that the idea is gaining momentum. More and more people are open to the idea that important products in their life, software products in their life, um, should be paid for. Um, they want great quality. Everybody loves the experience that they get from a Netflix or from an HBO or honestly from a Spotify. Um, and so, people are getting warming up to that idea. And so where we are currently is in this journey of creating a great product that works for you. I love it. So in that sense, for the people that are listening to get it, what, what is the business model of Neva? How do you guys make money? Well, first of all, you can check us out on neva.com. That's N-E-E-V-A dot C-O-M. Um, we are a subscription search engine. Uh, we have not quite figured out the final price, but we're pretty confident that for a full-featured consumer account will be somewhere between $5 and $10 a month. Um, and what you get out of the box is an ads-free private search engine that does everything that you expect a general search engine um, like a Google or a Bing or a Duck to do. Um, but there are never any ads. There are never any affiliate links. Um, and there is a relentless focus on what is right for you. Uh, that's like, you know, that's the product sort of out of the box, so to say. But we can do a lot more because we think of this as your search engine, because you are paying for it. You can connect your personal data. If you have data sitting in Google Drive and in Dropbox like I do, you can attach it to Neva. You can search over all of that from the same search box. You can express your preferences. If you like certain news providers but not others, that's fine. We do that. Um, you're also able to say things like you want certain kinds of retailers, small ones, but not big ones. Um, you can curate what you're searching for and what you're consuming. And you can share it with your spouse. You can share it with a friend. And you can even collaborate on it. Um, but that's the point of the product. It is very much your own search engine that adapts itself to your needs. It's early. Um, you know, we are at like 5,000 users. And that number is growing by, by the day. Um, and we're hoping to be in GA sometime next month. And that number will shoot up. Um, but we're pretty excited by this idea of creating a search engine where you're firmly in charge. And it's our model, the subscription model, that guarantees that all of my team is focused on creating that product for you. People are very surprised when they hear that the ads team, just the ads engineering and product team, is larger than the search team. And if you put the ads product team and the ad sales teams together, they're much larger than the search team. Um, in Neva, all of my team is focused on creating that great product for you. Um, but that's what we are, ads-free private search engine paid for by customers. I love it. 
And you were alluding to it with Sequoia and with Greylock as well. How much ha have you guys raised to date for Niva? So building search is uh, expensive. You know, you have to crawl the content off the planet. You have to build very large scale uh, systems. Uh, so we have raised uh, $77.5 million so far for Neva. It came in two um, batches. Our Series A was $37.5 million, and it was split equally between Sequoia, Greylock, and me. Uh, I invested $12.5 million uh, alongside Sequoia and Greylock. Uh, I wanted to put my money where my mouth was. Um, the second round was uh, a $40 million Series B that was split between Greylock, Sequoia, and another firm called Inovia, um, where my friend and former Google CFO, Patrick Pichette, um, works. Uh, and those have, been our, uh, those have been our two rounds. And why did you choose these investors? These investors, at one level, understood search, understood scale, understood what it took to create great companies. I'm very fortunate that, in addition to Bill, we have Reed Hoffman and Ashim Channa on our board. Reed does not need an introduction. He's one of the smartest thinkers, uh, smartest technologies on the planet. Um, and uh, so overall, our, our, our investors bring sort of a wealth of practical knowledge about how to, how to build a company. One of the things that I'm very clear about is to know my strengths and know my areas of weaknesses. And uh, I know, for example, that I'm a late founder. You know, I'm over 50, and I still started a company. There are strengths that come with it, the ability to see far, the ability to enunciate, the ability to motivate people to join the team, the relentless drive to get stuff done. I am open about the fact that I work every single day. Um, all of that is great, but I, I did not have as much practical experience about how does marketing work at a small scale? How does comms work? How do we, uh, you know, um, what are the latest and greatest technologies outside of Google that we know? This is where the, the, the venture network uh, comes in, and they've been wonderful partners for us. That's incredible. So, so then in your case, imagine if you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world five years later. I mean, it's a beautiful world. The vision of Neva is fully realized. I mean, imagine, right? Like, incredible. What, what, what does that world look like, you know, when that vision of uh, Neva is fully realized? So in that world, uh, a meaningful fraction of you know, citizens across the world, but definitely starting with countries like the US, Western Europe, are subscribers to uh, Neva. They, they get a great product. They feel as much passion about how the product works for them as people feel about their Spotify accounts. I don't know if you like, you know, my young kids have Spotify, super passionate about the product and uh, you know so that is that is part one which is we, we have created a product that people truly love but much more importantly I want um, to show that there are ways in which technology can truly just work for people no one should be surprised by anything that Neva as a company our product does because we want to be what we say we are at this worry-free product to me, this idea that technology needs to serve humanity rather than um, technology serving itself or its owners uh, is an important social concept. So I stress that. Uh, just as importantly, I think the myth that quality content can be supported entirely using ads 
has been firmly broken. No one believes that anymore. We think of it as a core mission of Neva to support content creation. We're going to be announcing that we'll actually share meaningful portions of our subscription revenue when we start making it, obviously, with content creators. And so I want that companies like Neva to demonstrate that content, quality content can be supported by means that are not just by ads. Of course, the New York Times now has 5 million subscribers, um, and it can say, yes, we are paid by subscribers. But what about the long tail of other content? What about that person that is passionate about some pet topic of theirs, whether it's like you know bonsai trees or something else that is a hobby, like I play the mridangam, which is a you know which is a South Indian instrument. How do people like that, that create great information also feel like there is a way for that to get rewarded? So we really want to think of customer aggregator, which is a search engine, the platform and how content is created in a new light. And that's the vision that we want to bring to life because the ads vision benefits the large companies and no one else. So, so then imagine now, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time. You know, obviously when you got started with the business 2019, I mean, it was remarkable the experience that you already had, but I'm sure that You've had, you know, your, your, you know, fair amount of lessons, you know, already, you know, with building Niva. But if I'm able to give yourself the chance to, to have a chat with that younger Sridhar that is saying, you know, thinking about building Niva, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your, to your younger self and why before launching Niva? I guess the biggest piece of advice would be to think harder about timescales, what needs to be done quickly versus what needs to be thought through. And it's a challenge for every startup. At one level, it is important to focus on the here and the now because you want to create a product. You want to make sure people like it. You want to make sure people are going to pay for it. So that pressure is relentless. But on the other hand, you know, you are going to be there six months from now. And so you have to carefully separate out what are the medium-term investments? What are the longer-term investments? What is the short-term focus? This, I pride myself on my ability to think about a long arc story um, that is compelling, but still figure out what to do today. I would say that is an area where I can still get better, where I need to base, we both Vivek and I need to have priorities of what do we do this month? What do we do in the next three months? What do we do in the next six months? And the long-term vision. So I would say just balancing that better um, would be my would be one of my biggest pieces of advice. The other one would be to create a network um, with all kinds of other people for the whole team from day one. Um, just like I need a network of other CEOs that can support me, other founders um, where we can learn from each other, the engineers also need this network of people that have learned. The marketing person at Neva needs that network of other great marketers. So having that ecosystem at every level is especially important when you're a 40-person company. There's only so much that you're simply going to know. Um, so I would say thinking about timescales and then thinking about effective networking for each function in the company would be the two things that I think we definitely could have done better. And lastly, and while we are speaking along those lines, what is one book that you wish you would have read sooner? The pandemic has actually been uh, 
amazing in terms of reading. I've probably read like 25 books in the last two years uh, or the course of the pandemic that have been profoundly uh, life-changing. I read both uh, Gandhi's autobiography um, and uh, an amazing uh, book about the years 1913 through independence uh, that an author called Guha wrote. Uh, but learning about Gandhi was profound. Um, learning about Nelson Mandela, I read his autobiography, was a profound experience, as was reading about MLK. Uh, and uh, so my biggest takeaway from all of these is there are greats among us that are truly able to see the larger need, the larger good of the people. And it was, it was very moving, very humbling, and very inspiring to understand that people like that um, you know, existed on the amount of impact that they have had on very large segments of society. Um, I would say I'm just a better human being because I uh, read about these amazing people. Wow. So Sridhar, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? They can definitely drop me uh, a line, Sridhar at uh, Neva.co. Uh, you can also find me on, uh, on Twitter, Ramaswamy Sridhar. Uh, unfortunately, it's missing a letter because Twitter only lets 15 letters and my name is very long, or on, uh, um, or on LinkedIn. Um, but do uh, check us out on our website, uh, neva.com, neava.com, or on Twitter, uh, where our handle is uh, at Neva. Amazing. Well, Fridar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.